Hello and welcome to the season nine finale of the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. So, Today's the day, everyone. The day lots of you have been waiting for since the podcast began, myself included. Dame Joanna Lumley, a national treasure and a name synonymous for travel, joins us on the podcast today. I feel like so many of you have been invested in this. You've asked me each season if I could make it happen. And so now that it has, I want to tell you all about it, all the details, because it was everything I could have hoped for and more. I met Joanna at the Kensington Hotel in London. The Kensington's my go-to meeting place when I head into town. I love its restaurant townhouse. They've been really supportive of the podcast over the seasons. And I met Joanna in one of its gorgeous suites. She greeted me as though she was greeting an old friend. She invited me to sit down and chat over a cup of tea before we got started, which is such a lovely thing to do before you get going on a big interview. She talked about her experience a few days beforehand as a guest at King Charles's coronation and how much she was moved by the music in Westminster Abbey. And she also just took a real genuine interest in asking about my life too and my family, which really put me at ease with someone who has such you know, an aura about her. I'll tell you about what happened after the interview, which still makes me chuckle at the end of the episode. And of course, you know, Joanna really doesn't need a lengthy introduction from me. I'm sure you know all about her, but I'll fill you in on the highlights just in case. As you'll hear on the episode, Joanna's appetite for adventure was deeply ingrained from childhood. She was born in Kashmir in the last days of British India, the daughter of an army officer who served with the Gurkhas. Throughout her childhood, her parents lived in Asia, moving to Hong Kong and Malaysia, while she spent term times at school in England. From her early days as a model gracing the covers of magazines and strutting down the runway, Joanna was destined for greatness. But it was her iconic role as Patsy in the hit TV series Absolutely Fabulous that truly catapulted her into the hearts of millions. If you don't know Patsy, I love Wikipedia's description of her. An alcoholic, a chain smoker and a frequent recreational drug user, she carries drugs with her at all times, storing joints in her trademark beehive. (laughs) After surviving solo on a desert island on the groundbreaking show Girl Friday, Joanna soon became as synonymous with travel as she was with Ab Fab, setting off on epic journeys that would make even the most seasoned globetrotter green with envy, from Japan and India to the Caribbean and the Silk Route. What makes her so remarkable, I think, is not just her fearless spirit, but her genuine love for the people she meets along the way, which you can see in her shows. She champions causes close to her heart, advocating for the rights of the Gurkhas, supporting endless charities, and shedding light on the important issues affecting our world. So, Fasten your seatbelts and get ready as we embark on a journey through the extraordinary life and awe-inspiring travels of Joanna Lumley from Malaysia to Uzbekistan, Italy to Indonesia. Let's get started. Joanna Lumley, welcome to the Travel Diaries. I can't believe that you're Thank here. Thank you so much, Holly. I have to say, I don't want to be too gushing, but when I first started this podcast, I, I made a dream guest wish list. And you were top of it. So to be here. Is that true? After a hundred episodes to finally get to meet you is just such a joy. Such a joy. There's almost nothing nicer on earth to talk about than travel, really, is there? No, there is nothing. And I mean, where do we start? Mm. I've been thinking about this today. Mm. You know, your travels have been so extensive. I mean, do you count countries? Do you know how many countries you've been to? I don't. I did. And when you get up to about 60 or something, you, you stop counting. Because we used to have very competitive crew who would always be sitting there. They, of course, had travelled even further. Yeah. But I think that as I was born in a suitcase, I was sort of travelling. I was leaving India before I was one year old. I was born in Kashmir. Mm. And then travelling huge um, ship journeys back to this country and then out to... You know, starting my life in Hong Kong and then Malaysia and then... And so I was already on the move. So travel seemed to me a completely natural way of living. 
Yeah, you're a born traveller. Yeah. You're a born traveller. Well, I mean, you've started us off perfectly. We're going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries today. And we start at the very beginning, yes. which is chapter one, your earliest childhood travel memory. So you've already painted a picture of, of some of the travels you took on at such a young age. What comes to mind as, as the earliest? I think, you know how you think you remember something, but it might have been a photograph. Mm-hmm. I think I remember, not really remember, but something about lying on my back, looking up at great pine trees, sighing in the wind. And that would have made me about six or seven months old, up in Kashmir. But as I can't remember anything about it, and there is a photograph of my sister looking rather cross with this new baby <laughs> in a basket um, up, in the, up in those huge Himalayan ranges. I wonder if I half remember that. What I clearly do remember is sitting in a pushchair in Hong Kong, We used to do what was called boiling hot shopping. And I must have been about two, two and a half. I've got a very good memory for long ago. Mm. Sitting in a pushchair outside a shop while my mother and sister must have gone in to get something. And two Chinese boys came past and saw me and thought I was a cute little baby. And one of them took out of his mouth some well-chewed chewing gum and popped it into my mouth. (laughs) And it was so slimy and so grey and so wet that I just sat with it in my mouth. <laughs> As a little baby. And what did your that mom, weird? Did your mum freak out? No, not at all. She never freaked out about anything. She thought all that was completely normal and rather generous of them. <laughs> because <laughs> chewing gum was quite new in those days, just after the war. But isn't that funny? I remember that. And then I remember um, that we had a flat in, in Hong Kong, which was a huge sort of old Victorian building. Now, I've, been, I've since returned to Hong Kong and seen that what used to be the, rail, the road, the railway track, and then the harbour has now been built out for about another half mile. Mm. They've reclaimed or made land yeah, and have built all kinds of things over it. So you stand there with some sort of half memory, but of course the view you're looking at is not a harbour full of great big ships and Chinese junks, but now is just roads and modern buildings. Mm, You've it. got to hang on to memories because quite often they're stronger than photographs. Yeah. They're better than photographs. Yes. Because with them sometimes comes the sense of smell, a sound, a feeling. Photographs, you look at it and you, you go, oh, look at those clothes, or was it really, did, did so-and-so have a moustache then? I can't remember. But if you have it tucked into your mind, so I always try to say to people, instead of photographing things, stare at them or draw them drawing is very good because Mm -hmm. you have to look quite differently at something if I was drawing you now I would look at your face quite differently in like a more nuanced way and and the kind of memory sticks in my head that's so interesting and and you talk about the fact that you prior to that were going back from India on ships well in the olden days (laughs) just what I can say quite grandly because I'm now 112 (laughs) <laughs> in the olden days, all armies, army families travelled by ship. Nobody could afford to fly by, uh, by air. And the journeys were f- long and far. Um, the, on the Franconia, coming back from Bombay, when I left India, it was called Bombay then, before it became Mumbai. Yeah. And sailing back to, I think it might have been Liverpool, to, to, to then turn around and come back and then be reposted. That would have taken about three and a half weeks. The and you troop did that ships, journey? I did it five times. Three no, and a half weeks. Three and a, no, four weeks then to Singapore. And if we're going to Hong Kong, it's five weeks on oh board these old tin troop ships. And uh, we went on the Empire Windrush, <gasps> with Windrush, which yeah. was used, of course, for the Windrush generation. Yeah. Um, the Dilwara, the Empire Orwell, then the Dilwara again. And you were on board for one month. And was that exciting or was it kind it's of... It's completely normal. Children think yeah. things are completely normal. Yes. Yeah. And so you get on, but it's always exciting going up huge gangplanks and finding your cabin and sleeping on the top or the bottom bunk and the new pattern of remembering to step over when you go out of any, or into any room because there's always that huge high step so that if water comes onto the ship, it doesn't immediately go from one room to another. So you step over to go in and out of any door. And when you were little, that must seem huge. It was huge. Yeah. And being given an orange every day, obviously against scurvy, since, I mean, now when you look at the a range of fruit and, and the way that ships are, they were, these were old tin tubs. These were working pack horses of ships. So there was no entertainment. There was nothing. There was no entertainment. On Sundays, they used to clear the dining room and make it into a kind of 
chapel, I suppose. And we were all expected to attend church on Sundays where we would sing For Those in Peril on the Sea. Oh, my goodness. And uh, and Wednesdays, I remember the sailors would... Those days, the division, the class divisions, and particularly within the army, they may still be there, I don't know, there were the officers who had one deck, and then they were called the other ranks, which always seemed to me, even then, as pretty sort of you know, d- d- derisory way of talking about soldiers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fighters. Yeah. I mean, the officers are fighters too, but to have officers in other ranks. And the sailors would take us down from officers down to other ranks, where they'd set up a wonderful cinema, and they would show us and all the lovely other ranks children who we all could muck in with. Mickey Mouse and uh, early, early cartoon films. And I suppose there was no thing, no such thing as television or anything like that. These were enormous treats, yeah. climbing down a kind of gangway, a gangplank kind of thing, right steep, steep, steep down, and being given ice creams. I don't think they were ice or cream. <laughs> they were sort of white, whitish blobs, too <laughs> thrilling for words. How incredible. I mean, that's such an unusual experience to have had in your early childhood. Normal for army brats, as we were called, army children, but completely abnormal. And, of course, you went to school for two years or three years, you made friends, then you upped and went. Mm. And during that time, some of their times, their tours of duty would be over, their parents' tours of duty would be over, and they'd suddenly disappear yeah. from the class and different Very people would transient. come in. You just get that feeling, you know? And when you were at boarding school in England, mm. where did you, during your childhood, like, where was home in your head? Um, well, we rented... And um, once my parents had to go back to Malaya, so then on that holiday we were looked after by godparents and guardians and stayed where we were sent. But then my parents rented, eventually found a house in Kent. But because they'd been brought up in India and their parents been... I mean, we we didn't come from anybody, although we are basically British, we didn't have any base here Mm. because for so long on both sides of the family we hadn't had a home here. The roots were there. Yeah. We, we, we by nature this is what we are yeah. but our, them, my parents my mother's heart was it remained in India till the day she died mm. so we bought a house in Kent because it was quite near the coast and we knew somebody in Kent I mean that's why yeah and then that became my childhood home right I see so all over basically is where you were yeah how wonderful moving on to chapter two that is the first place that you fell in love with I have quite a low threshold for falling in love. I fall in love very easily, every day, twice a day, five mm-hmm. times a day. <laughs> and as for countries, I tend to love them on the spot. Much later in life, I've taught myself that the best thing you can do when you arrive somewhere new is to say at once, I love this place. I love it. Later on, you might be disproved <laughs> and it might be ghastly, but start off with an open heart saying, I love it. So I loved Malaya, as it was called then, because of this. It had very, very extreme climate, bursting heat, humid. humid and burning suns, massive monsoon rains and thunderstorms, thunderstorms you couldn't believe, sunsets terribly quick because the sun, when the sun went down, there was no evening, it was daylight and then the sunset and it was nighttime, there was no mm. long evenings. But as the sun went down, the brilliance of the colours, the strips of purple and apricot and green and yellow on the horizon the speed of the flowers which would open up and bloom huge white moon flowers Ipomir alba which were rather like uh, morning glory mm. or columbine would just open up huge the size of a dinner plate and die overnight and the next morning their buds would be waiting scrolled up like umbrellas mm. which would unfurl during the evening things called the rose of sharon which you would pick when it was white and during the heat of the day it would turn crimson These are great, unbelievable things. The sound of the birds. So the natural beauty of the country. The natural beauty and the love of it. And then, of course, walking tin mines where great rickety bamboo structures would take, extract the tin, and then it would go chunkling down with rustling kind of water and the, the great rubber plantations with the trees standing in a kind of gloomy silence with scars all around them and then a little cup to collect the latex as it dripped out. Like the latex, I don't yeah, realise that. How that's how rubber worked. comes. You bleed the trees, you milk the trees. I feel like I actually have seen that on one of your programmes many, many years ago. I wonder if you have. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you saw it in a dream, little Holly. Maybe I. 
<laughs> and what would you what would you do when you were there? Like, how would you spend your time with your family? We were at school, yeah. Um, and my father was working because he was a working soldier, and so sometimes he'd disappear into the jungle for three months. This yeah. was fighting off the communist invasions coming down from the north, the terrorists who would terrorize and kill the villagers. Um, unless they turned communist. And so the, it was a British protectorate. So the British army, which was daddy's, I mean, it's fun. It was an Indian army, but then after the fall of India, it became the, the British army. But they were Gurkhas. So daddy was with Gurkhas, who were the best jungle fighters in the world. And they would disappear into the jungle to repel the terrorists. Mm. My sister and I went to the army school. We'd walk there every day. And one of the roads was covered with crystal quartz, so it sparkled like diamonds. You walked on a road of diamonds to school. When we came back, our long hair, which was in plaits, was wet through, wet through with sweat. Hmm. And sometimes we would go in the school holidays, we would go to the higher parts of, Mal- of Malaya, Mal- Malaysia is it is now. The central part of that great um, peninsula has got the Cameron Highlands and Fraser's Hill, which were up and cooler air and different flowers and just wonderfully re- refreshing for particularly kind of European people who found that oppressive heat mm. almost too much to bear. Mm. So this would be a huge excitement going up, usually in convoy because the, the danger of being shot at by the, by the terrorists, but for going in either an armed car or an army closed-over vehicle, and up and up and up, and then getting out into this cool air, and you could hear below in the forests monkeys whooping in the trees. And in the morning, there were vast spider's webs, like great lace bedspreads spread over everything, and birds singing and crashing in the trees. What an incredible picture. It's magic. And were you to go back there now? I've or, been uh, back. W- w- sorry, were I to go perhaps then? Because I've not been. No. Where would you tell me to go first? Because as you've depicted, it's such it's a diverse country. It's gone. I oh, really? It's gone. What In what, what respect? The rubber plantations have gone. Ugh. They've been replaced by palm, palm oil, oil, which, of course, has nothing. doesn't have monkeys, nothing. No, nothing grows in or around oh, palm desperate. trees. The tin mines have been shut down. There are motorways everywhere, which, mm. of course, is much easier for driving. The old towns and cities um, ha- have been built up. Of course they have. The world has changed. I'm talking about 70 years ago. Um, and so there are now huge modern buildings and... Our little airstrip in front of the bungalow where we lived, which had little puttering, bi-winged planes landing, and on what was called laterite, which is the red earth, you know, making the kind of landing strip. All these huge, big, important international airways and things now. So it's very different. And I have been back, and I was just taken aback because I couldn't recognise any of yeah. it. I couldn't recognise any of it. Some places have remained tourist um, spots like the Batu Caves, huge ta- caves which have got um, Hindu temples in them. As, uh, and you ascend flights and flights of stairs till you think you can't breathe, assaulted by monkeys as you go up, all the way up and up and up and up. Huh. And there are the great Batu Caves. And when we were there, the Batu Caves were hideouts for the terrorists. So it's very different now. But now you can see all sorts of wonderful things. And Malaysia is so friendly and so interesting and so colourful. But it's not, not the place I knew. My father used to say, you must never go back. That's, again, what keep it in your memory. Yeah, hold it close. Because changes are hardly ever for the better. No, yeah, of course, exactly. The simplicity of a, of a kind of life disappears. We see it in London now, bits of what used to be whiskery old bits of the Thames, where we could walk, find things, just look around, lean on things, is now one of the largest cities within a city, which is Nine Elms, where the new American embassy is. Complete transformation. And Battersea Power Station now, huge. And, of course, it's fabulous. It's covered with flats. It's covered with things, but it's not the London I knew. No. Yeah. And we're in the falling in love chapter at the moment. And, of course people fell in love with you at different points in your illustrious career in all different respects I would say that my earliest memory of you I think I would have been about six Mm. was watching you on Girl Friday I used to watch that with my parents and I mean 
just to give the listeners some context if they they weren't aware of it you spent 10 days on your own off an uninhabited island off madagascar that's right right? i mean you know a real precursor to the survivors and the island shows you know it was it was a brand new idea and it it came just when i think we'd done the first series of absolutely fabulous Mm. and the bbc said wouldn't it be funny if patsy was cast away on a desert island without any drink or something (laughs) i said well it wouldn't the joke wouldn't really last longer than a few minutes. And also, Patsy's not mine. She's owned, as it were, by Jennifer Saunders. I mean, I, I inhabit her. So I don't think that would work. But if you want to cast me, Joanna Lumley, away, because I'm quite tough and I quite like kind of roughy-tufty outdoor living and I, I'm good at having a go at things and quite practical, we could see what it was like for me to live without very much. They took it to its extreme, and when they say not very much, they gave me... Holly, they gave me one pound of rice, which is difficult to explain because people do things in different weights. But it's um, ha- half a kilo of rice, I would say, for for the duration. For that ten was my food. days, yeah. yeah. And you know, t- tell us about what it was like, like what you what you did to survive, and and did you enjoy it? You spend all day hunting for firewood. Because yeah. you've got to build a fire and, and stay you have warm. To, and well, no, no, you're boiling. Oh, of course, you're on no, an this island. Is to cook. If you've got to cook the rice, you've got to boil up the water. Right. You have to collect the water, and there was no fresh water, so I had to collect it running off the rocks. And there'd been a late monsoon, so <clears throat> water was pouring around, but it was off the ground, so I had to collect it, purify it, then boil it. And they'd given me an old tin can with rust in it to boil up my water. Mm. Then I had to light my fire using a flint, not a match. It was, it was really quite hardcore. And there was no fruit or and everything. The monsoon had taken down all the fruits. There was nothing to eat on the island yeah. except limes. And I fell in love with limes because a lime squeezed into water or squeezed over the rice made it palatable. Mm. Um, it was very quick. You, we very quickly uh, find again our old human instincts. I knew within two or three days I could smell when the rain would come, literally to the minute when the rain would come. Mm. Suddenly, because it happens very quickly. We're back in the tropics again. Um, It happens very fast. You see a black cloud and then in minutes it's pelting down with raindrops the size of cakes, banging, 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 which would put out your fire or soak it to the skin. You never mind being soaked to the skin because you were warm, but it was very, very tough and I loved it. You loved I would it. never yeah. have gone back on that because I stopped being afraid ever, not that I was much, of death. I realised we're just part of the huge great pattern. All is well. The birds and insects would come close to me when there was nobody there because the crew left the island. They were living on a dive ship. And I guess as it was sea. uninhabited, the, the birds would have, you know, wouldn't be <clears> fearful. They, they weren't fearful. They yes. would come quite close and have a look at me. Yeah. And the flying foxes, the bats who came in, the fruit bats, would fly around with their little foxy faces looking at me with their eyes. Wow. So it was a formative experience. It was extraordinary and it was utterly, utterly exhausting because there was nowhere to sleep. I didn't have a bed or anything like that. Um, And so I had to sleep either on rocks inside a cave or in this hastily constructed A-frame bed like a sort of hammock where the the rain, because it rained almost every day and every night, would come and wet you down and you were frozen because when the wind blew and you're wet at three in the morning... But I didn't have a clock. I didn't have any idea of time. But I had my own time. And it was thrilling. A lot of time alone with your own thoughts as well. Yes, but in your head, you see, we put so much in nowadays. We take in so much. I I don't use a mobile phone and I don't do any social media. So I don't do any of that. But nevertheless, I see stuff all the time. Stuff comes into my head. Music, I listen to the wireless and I listen and I watch the news and so on. So stuff comes into you. When you're there and there's nothing to come into you, everything you've known or read or listened to or remembered comes bubbling up. I could remember entire poems, books, tunes, songs, music. It all—it was as though I'd been pushing it down by having to keep on cramming stuff in. The second you stop cramming stuff in, you're stuffed like a sofa. Even you, sweet Holly. Listeners, I should tell you she's looking particularly ravishing today. <laughs> <laughs> we are like sofas, overstuffed. And once you can just take the lid off, people are afraid of it. I was afraid of being without music and afraid of being without books because they're my lifelines. Without them, I found I had got them all stuffed inside me anyway. How liberating. Mm. Mm. That's a, a really interesting way to approach travel, maybe. Yes. Freeing. <clears throat> Try and get, get rid of and all of And don't read stuff, excellent. look at stuff, look yeah. at stuff. Take yeah. in as much as you can. 
And then, of course, even more people fell in love with you around the same time with AbFab. And I have to give it a mention, even though we've got so much travel to cover. I mean, like such an iconic, such a, a role of a lifetime, would you say? It was one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in my life. And I think yeah. that's to do with laughing. We laughed so much, all of us, in rehearsals. And Jennifer and I, thinking up different things these ghastly women would do, we just <laughs> sob with laughter. And we tried because it was it was recorded live in front of an audience at the BBC. I forgot about I know. That, yeah. And so you're trying to do a proper show. So it wasn't as though we came on and just fooled around. Mm. We did a proper show for them. Very occasionally things would go wrong and we'd have to re- retake something. First of all, we were anxious that the audience would be bored with the idea of doing it again. They adored it. Yeah. They were in on the joke. As yeah, it were. yeah. And sometimes we'd do things, we had to do things three times. And they got more and more in, involved with it and adoring it. Because, of course, these huge five cameras and behind them sits the audience. And you have this split loyalty to entertain the audience within the studio. And, of course, your loyalty is to the far larger audience, which is beyond the five cameras who are recording it for the public. That's such a skill, actually, that kind of acting where, I mean, that's a real test of a comedic talent because you need to make it funny each time. We rode on the backs of the the, the great cushion of laughter that came off the audience and sometimes we had to stop Holly because they couldn't stop laughing (laughs) they could not stop laughing and it was magic and because they became fans quite quickly and a lot of them were fans already of French and Saunders so they knew they were in for something good yeah and they became devoted fans they could anticipate knowing our characters knowing how dim bubble was how dotty mother was how straight-laced little bubble um little Julia Sawala playing Safi was and how repellent Eddie and Patsy were. (laughs) And because they knew that, they could see how certain situations might go wrong. Of course, we had the most stunning guest artists too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, apart from our finest comedic talents, we'd have people like Elton John and Sasha Distel and people just coming, Stella McCartney, just being in and on the show. And it's timeless comedy as well. I mean, I feel like as if it was put onto, you know, a lot of old shows at the moment are being put onto Netflix and new generations are discovering it. I mean, it, it... it would disappear. It disappeals to everyone now. It does. It's still this, so funny. This comes from the standard of writing. If things are very funnily written, if they're very good, they become classics. So things like porridge never date. Mm. Only fools and horses never date. Yeah, forty towers. You know, and those sorts of forty towers. Yeah. Those ones. And we're, we, I like to think because I think Jennifer's a complete star. That Ab Fab has joined that legion of 100%. things that are so brilliant they become classics. Totally, totally. And talking about classic, I mean classic lines. When you have a, a a, a part that's as iconic what are the li- what is the line that's said no, back to you I most no oh people say to me hello yeah. sweetie darling in <laughs> fact that was that was uh, eddie's lines she called people so darling darling sweetie sweetie darling yeah. but patsy sometimes used to say cheers thanks a lot but i mean I, it, it, almost anything people um particularly gay people say can you write this on my thing or can you save me you little bitch troll from hell which <laughs> what patsy called saffy once you know, and all those ridiculous things. I, of course, having played the part, I've forgotten them. Right. Because the second right, you've yeah. done a script, you clear your mind and start on the next but one. But for other you people, these are like people, iconic come, lines. I met somebody else yeah. who said, I know every line of, of every script, which is extraordinary. We had a particular loyalty. And when Jennifer and I meet, which is quite often, not as often as we'd like, they haven't gone away. Mm. They can't, you know, they... We find if we're eating in a restaurant, we immediately know things that would make them that they do wrong, or you know, and because they're such a particularly Patsy is such a decayed character, all her organs removed, and so when she drinks, quite often whatever she's drinking comes out of a tube onto the ground. <laughs> I mean, it, we we just cry with laughter, and so we always think of things that they couldn't do, and we loved them being very very old when they when Patsy had found some false teeth in a dustbin, so she'd put those in, so she could hardly speak, <laughs> and they were bald and had wispy hair. Honestly. We love that more than anything. I, I know that you're literally asked this every single time that you're interviewed, but um, like as the ideas just bubble up every time you come together, do you think you'd ever revive it? I don't think absolutely fabulous. I don't think, but uh, honestly, you see, it's Jennifer's baby. It's not ours. It, it feels as though it hasn't completely gone away, yeah. both from us or from the public's kind appreciation. It wouldn't be... Gross. What you must never do is overstay your welcome. And sometimes you don't want to dig something up and flog a dead horse. And people go, yeah, it was funny then, but I don't know if it works now. I don't think the show could be made now. 
because and a lot of the things we did, I think that the, the sensitivities of society have so altered that a lot of things people might find objectionable. I hope they wouldn't. Anyway, you know, I mean, th these are repulsive women. Who, we laugh at them. But it's funny how sensitive the world is now. But mm. Jennifer was always ahead of the game, you know. Mm. In diversity, mm. casting, she she never thought of it as that. She just liked people and liked actors and liked particular performers. So she didn't do this box-ticking thing of we must have, we must have, we must have. But when you look back at them... Yeah, female protagonists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Ugh, amazing memories, amazing. Well, I mean, of course, I would just like to put on the record that I would be thrilled if it ever did come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet God. So moving on to chapter three, that is the place where you learn the most about yourself. I've learned nothing about myself. I live in here, so I know myself, so I've never learned anything about myself. <laughs> Isn't really? that funny? People often say to me, what have you learned about yourself since you were on the island? Or since? And I, I live, I am me. So there's nothing to learn. I know me. That's, but that's an amazing place to be. Well, no, it's not, it's not grand. It's not fine. I'm not going, oh, my gosh, I didn't know I was so... X or Y, yeah. X yeah. or Y. How self-regarding. Why? I am me. If there's something about me, if I know somebody, for instance, is irritating me a lot, I find that is my fault. And then I begin to change how... I feel about them so that they don't irritate me. You can't stop them being what they are. So change how you hear things or feel things. Mm. You can't stop people saying nice or nasty things about you. So change how you react to that. So you can do that. But I, I, I am me, so I know, I know that what I have. I love that. I, I always remember um, reading an interview with you years ago I was sitting in my dad's flat and it was one of those quick fire magazine ones and it was glass half full or glass half empty and you you said overflowing <laughs> um and that has literally sat with me for probably over 10 years and in trying to kind of shape my own approach to to life which I, sh I struggle to be overflowing but I mean how is how is that you know how how did you become so like that and, and you know oh, how has that I, I shaped think your I travels? I was born grinning my father said I looked like <laughs> a hammer-headed shark when I was born because I had a huge mouth and he said I had no nose at all just a couple of holes poked into the clay as it were and I just never stopped grinning I seem to have been born happy so it doesn't mean to say that you don't have great dark holes and great sadnesses and quite often long periods of your life when you suddenly go, this is all becoming a little bit of a challenge. You keep on going and nobody would know and you smile away because if you've rehearsed well, this is one of the good things about being an actor, you can get through a lot of life. Funnily enough, doctor theatre as we call it, which means pretending you're okay when in fact you've got flu, by the end of the stage performance when you've gone on with a temperature of 102, you come off and you've almost cured yourself because you've acted as though it, you're not ill. The power of a human mind. There is. Yeah. It's, there's that. And all the great explorers, people like Rand Fiennes, and, they, and I've always asked them, who do yeah. you want on your trips with you? And they say people with optimism and a good heart. Not fit people. I mean, fit people is good. They've got to be fairly fit. But we don't go for the fit people. We go for the people who are mentally, mentally strong. strong and mentally upbeat. One of my former guests on the podcast actually ran finds, and uh, a dry sense of humour as well Funny goes a long though. way. If, yes, uh, that's what they want—a sense of humour because you're going to go through some very grim times, mm. very difficult times. And of course, I think when I look back, when I hear back to times beyond my times, back to the songs of the First World War, when they say "Smile, boys," that's the style. You know, while you've a Lucifer, which was an old kind of match which came out of a matchbox to light your fag smile boys that's the stuff what's the use of worrying never was worthwhile these men are tramping towards probably a certain death they're singing their hearts up in a in a major key song mm. um tramping along smile 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 yeah and you think this is one of the ways of approaching life people are very anti um what they call the stiff upper lip but if you think of it as a smile instead of a stiff upper lip if you think of people facing great hardship with a high heart and a smile and a sense of optimism, you'd rather be with them than people moaning and complaining, wouldn't you? 100%. Even though the situation is exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. And so on your different journeys that you've taken that we've witnessed on the TV, 
um, and you've taken that positive approach. Have there, I mean, there have been, of course, very moving parts to mm. all, many of the journeys that mm. you've taken, and you know, going back to the place, places where you grew up and, and, and many other destinations that have moved you visibly. Is there a journey in particular that comes to mind that... There are situations, yeah, Holly, rather yeah. than journeys. Yeah. Um, the cinema for the homeless in India where a kind businessman noticed that all these millions of unemployed and unemployable people, usually from the Dalit, the untouchable class, um, quite often with massive problems, drink, drugs, just poverty, or inability, or um, disability, living like beggars, worse than beggars, worse than rats. And underneath one of the great bri bridges in, and I think we were in Mumbai, um, or was it Delhi? It might have been Delhi, I think it might have been Delhi. Um, by the river there, where I'm quite hardy, so it doesn't worry me. I was picking through piles of excrement with rats as big as cats just running easily around my feet mm. amongst these men mm. who had no home and no nothing. Some people had set up little stalls where they could give them the humblest vegetarian food and maybe some clean water, not give them, sell them, because they had to make a living. And so these, these men would beg all day long and then come by that... A businessman passing by thought, what do they do in the daytime? And he got a big um, screen and rigged up a kind of video camera and got some old films and put a tarpaulin over the top and would show, this, show films so that the men could sit and lose their sense of present horror and degradation in adventures in Hollywood or Bollywood or wherever. Um... And we were terribly touched by that. Yeah. And I went what in to sit on the ground with these yeah. lovely men and the courtesy of people who have nothing always brings me to tears. And he, and he had no teeth, so it was hard to understand what he was saying. And he was speaking in Hindustani anyway. But what he was saying is, can I get you anything? Can I get you some water? Mm. He had nothing to give me, but he knew he could go and get me some water. Um, it absolutely caught my throat. Humanity. We... Yeah. we club together afterwards so I'm pleased to say that their worst thing was that the rains came in and so we got them a massive tarpaulin to cover the whole thing to cover the whole tent oh. and then of course the, the street boys in Haiti and there are I mean I've since met all kinds of people the gold miners in Madagascar who scratch a living and come out with something the size of a, a grain of pepper at the end of probably maybe even a week mm. which wouldn't really buy a bunch of bananas um, the poverty of people around the world woven in with uh, it seems to be absolutely in balance the poorer you are the more generous you are with what you've got and the more courteous you are mm. it's the rich people who are rude and mean mm. and this has always struck me not all rich people of course lots of extremely generous people but there is a tendency to think you're special if you're rich and yeah. that's horrifying. That's why I love doing these programs, is to get back to my roots, which is an ordinary human being, yeah. who there but for the grace of God, I'm living under a railway bridge in the middle of Delhi without anything. Mm. Yeah, those experiences, I imagine, you've, you go back to as well, like in those quiet moments. You do. Yeah. And also the moments of sheer jubilation being in Uzbekistan with an eagle which weighs as much as a small dog sitting on your gloved wrist, <laughs> yes. waiting for it, with its hood over its head, so as peaceful as peaceful can be. And once you take its hood off and let go of the jesses you hold here, and this vast thing soars off down the valley. I mean, you think... I can't think of privileges greater than this. It really struck me that you loved Uzbekistan. I loved it. Yeah. These are countries so far away. I love the whole... I've always been fascinated by Central Asia. My grandparents, who were diplomats, travelled there a lot. And my grandmother was a, was a painter, a very good painter. She painted a lot in Tibet and in Sikkim and Bhutan. And also she painted in Persia, as it was in those days. Gosh. But she got to be in love with Central Asia. And it's kind of... It's kind of the cradle of civilization. Mm. Of course, there was the Far East and China and all its... But the trading went on from Central Asia and out to the Far East. Europe was pretty much in the Dark Ages. Yeah. There were Goths and Huns and we were painting our faces blue. But these unbelievably sophisticated societies yeah. were trading and traveling with their own um, particular cuisines and styles and languages, religions, uh, inventions, things like paper, silk, 
yeah, tea, course, yeah. gunpowder, traveling to and fro, and ending up in Central Asia. So I loved those, what we call the Stans, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, all these Stans sitting around, many of whom have been under the, under the rule of Russia for so long. And impenetrable for most tourists. impenetrable until 1991. And suddenly the Russian, sort of the USSR collapsed and these countries were free free again. Yeah. And it must be so exciting going to places that feel so undiscovered. To take the golden road to Samarkand. Yeah. I'd love to be there. You pinch yourself. These are dream places, dreams. And you know you're walking in ancient history. Mm. And it's the beauty... And the food, the food and the tastes. And we've always thought of ourselves, which we are, cultured and sophisticated and so on in, in Europe. But then you realise these extraordinary cultures have been going on for centuries and centuries before our time started being recorded. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of these gems, as you say, chapter four is your all-time favourite destination, Joanna. Oh, gosh. Tashrabat. Tashrabat is on the board, on the almost on the Chinese borders with Kyrgyzstan, and it is the most extraordinary, spine-chilling, hair-raising place. I first read about it with Colin Thubron's great travels. He's a traveller. I just literally lie on the ground in front of him when he and say, "Walk over me." Oh, Thubron, <laughs> the mighty, brilliant travel writer. And if you haven't read Colin Thubron, start today. And I read about this place called Tashrabat. These are the things that intrigued me. Nobody knows if it was built as a palace or a prison or a fortress. Nobody knows when it was built. And even today, and having been there, nobody knows if it has 33 or 34 rooms because it's so haunted that when you count them, they come out different. So, Really? This is, and it's also beyond the back of beyond the back of beyond. And just when you're down a valley where you think nothing else can be happening, you see crouching this extraordinary low building, large enough to let a camel, a pack camel through, because these were when, this was all part of the spice route, the the, the, the silk route. They were taking their things. They would have come here. They would have come on maybe asses, maybe camels for sure. Then they'd have to disload everything, push onto yaks to get through the high mountain passes before they were passed on. And so this is a great place where you could take a great loaded beast in and unload it. There, were, there are no windows, but there are holes in the ceiling, arched ceilings, and quite low rooms. And you creep through, you can stand up and oh, 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 hear the echo going around. And quite sort of humble and weird. And where the grand people would have slept and the where there's the work the people who are the camel managers and the people who are the cooks and the things like this where they would have been and how long they would have stayed there and the great cold snows and the great intense heat of the summer then packing up and going but you can go to Tashrabat it takes a bit of time yeah. get yourself to Kyrgyzstan and get yourself down to Tashrabat oh my goodness you painted an amazing picture there you'd love it Holly Oh, it, it just sounds... I've got a little piece of slate. I bring back stone and stuff. And so from volcanic areas, from Mount Ararat, I've got a piece of volcanic pumice. And I've got a piece of um, fool's gold from the Murchison Falls in Uganda, which I keep keep them all in the bathroom. And then just recently from Gunung Api, which is the great volcanic mountain in the Banda Islands, I've got some more. And I've got, I've got some slate from Tashrabat. Incredible. We, I, I was, we were just talking earlier that your house is a treasure trove of amazing travel memories. It, is. it must be lovely to come across these things, or like, like, like you say, when you're in the you bath. Find them, and you, then t- you take it, and I write on them so that if I fall down dead tomorrow, I can leave in my will. I say, please put into my coffin with me my stones, and particularly the Tashrabat ones. <laughs> and all the other things, the feathers, my huge feathers from um, vultures and shells and things I've collected. I just love all those things. The yeah. coffin will be hard, have to be pushed, I think. It can't be carried. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of books to read in case I'm awake. Is there a passport stamp that you're most... Lots of books to read in case you're awake. <laughs> uh, passport stamp that you're most proud of? Um, some of them don't go into your passports. So Iran was not in my passport. Was it not? You're given a special pass. Yes. And I think um, Russia 
they don't like to stamp your passport. Mm. Um, so some of these places are, I'm not sure with China, you have a special sort of visa, mm. which is a separate visa, which sometimes you have to hand in at the end. And so you have That's to remove sad, it. isn't it's it? It's sad. You have to pass and it I keep all my old passports when they used to be the blue ones with all the corners cut off. Yes. And when I was a model, when I started traveling, having been to school in England, and then became a model and traveled a lot on the continent doing photographs all over all the European countries, I had to travel on a photograph of myself as 12 years old, with sawn-off hair, not a scrap of makeup, and a round pudding face. And there was I, modelled up, looking pretty fabulous, a bit like Patsy. Massive eyelashes and hair all done, you know, rouged cheeks and masses of lipstick and things. And the passport people would look at that and see this little pudding-faced 12-year-old. <laughs> Sweet. But anyway, I love passports. And they used to put on them your height, and your colours is before your time, what your job was. And if you're a woman like me, I would be Joanna Lumley. Um, but now I'm married and it would be Joanna Barlow, nay, N-E-E, with an accent, um, grave on the, on the, acute on the first E, meaning your born name, your maiden name was Lumley. They've taken all that away now. Yeah, yeah. So I used to, I had my passports as Joanna Barlow and I've been thrown off flights because the, the people booking me booked me as Joanna Lumley. Really? Having forgotten that, that I said, please book under Barlow. Yeah. And they said, we don't have that down now. So now in my passports I have, also known as... Do you actually? Yep. Really? They hate me for it, but I say, you have to write this down or I have to kill you. My daughter has an extremely long surname <gasps> and that it doesn't fit onto a plane ticket. So <laughs> we're facing all kinds of new issues ourselves. Is that Do you, do you have a double a, surname? Yeah, What's her name? So my surname is Rubenstein. Beautiful name. And, and my husband's surname is Bagley. So this is quite a lot. So yes, it was. We worked out like, does it fit into all the boxes on you know on a form? It just does. But we couldn't decide. You know, I didn't want to give up my name. I grew her, and uh, he didn't want to give up his name. It's quite an unusual yeah. name. So yeah, Bagalay Rubenstein How doesn't beautiful. fit on a BA ticket. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so and we think it'll be known as BR. BR. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll just go for something quite you know. Quite cool. Yeah, quite cool, yeah, really. Yeah. So let's move on to chapter five, which is your hidden gem, a place that you love that my listeners might not know so much about. Um, my heart returns to Siena in Italy. The Campo in Siena is as old as the hills. I mean, Italy is full of gems, but there's something about Siena. It was once a hugely important town, city. Mm, yeah. Um, always at war with Florence, which makes you so sad. You go to such beautiful places, why are you so angry with each other? But Siena has got this great central, well, you could, it's not square, but it's a kind of sloping, it's called the Campo di Siena. And it's just a circular kind of place which would have had a fountain in the middle of it. It's got massive tall, the, the, the town hall and the great libraries and huge buildings around it. Every year they have the Palio, the great horse race, they, one, one in July, one in August, where contradas, which are all these different... I mean, talk about tribal. Holly, it is tribalness at its most tribal. You're born within a contrada. So if you put your pin in the middle and then put, like, cake stripes out, I think there are 17 contrada. Mm. And wherever you're born is what to, what you are, whether you're the, the caterpillar or the owl or the dolphin or the lion or whatever it is, all these different contradas. And they have horses, and every year in these horse races they're ridden bareback at the speed of light around this great place. Oh. The food there is heaven. Yes. I've been there in the winter and the summer and the spring and the autumn. And so to smell the wood all smoke. The year. Oh, the wood smoke and the cobbled tiny streets. And they've kept all these old buildings, and they've got modern things. We'd be doing a podcast using modern equipment like this, but in one of the ancient caves, which used to be a wine cellar from the 13th century. Mm. This is magic way of yeah. living, where yes. you stitch the old into the new, 100%. and the past occupies yeah. the present. Yes, yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. And, and of course, in terms of hidden gems, you come across so many on your new series, Joanna Lumley's Spice Trail Adventure. That's it. We we couldn't think what to call it. But because we'd had the Silk Road Adventure, we thought the Spice Trail, because there's something about spices, because they're usually ground when we get them. Mm. That kind of sense of trail, you, it's almost as if you could sniff out following it. And this, Holly, was just extraordinary because luckily now in this country, not when I first came here, when I think we just had salt and pepper and that was it. Mm. Now this country is alive with spices. It we is, can get yeah. every spice under the sun and we revel in them. And the huge range of different cuisines we have and the influences and the kind of fusion cooking. We're used to spices all the time. Where did they come from? And so this idea took us far, far, far away to almost the most remote, remote place I've ever been on this earth. Uh, and I've been nearly to the North Pole. Yeah. And I've been practically the heart of the Sahara. I've been around the world a bit. This was a 10-hour ferry ride from Ambon, which itself is quite hard to get to, in Indonesia. The Banda Islands, where the only nutmeg trees in the whole world were grown uh. in the 16th century. The only trees in the entire world from nutmeg. And from nutmeg, you get mace as well. Yes. And they used to trade with the Chinese, with the Indians and with the Arabs. Late to the game came the Europeans mm. in the form of the Dutch and the Portuguese and then later on the English, who were all frantic to get this new and delicious spice, which was reputed nutmeg to be able to preserve meat. And remember, they had no refrigerators in those days. Yes. And they also claimed that it could cure the plague and the Black Death was sweeping the world in great waves every now and again. Up it would come again and steal away half the population. So this was to be devoutly desired and bloodily fought over. And they exported it on these 10-hour long ferry or longer. Oh, be well, those, were, those yes. were great big ships. Those yes. would take forever. Uh, yes. And of course, there was no, to bring them back to Europe, you had to go around the south of South Africa because the Suez Canal was not open. Of course. So either you would take them up yes. the Arabian Sea and put them through great trading cities like Petra and Palmyra. Petra in Jordan, Palmyra which in you Syria, also which I've also been, and been visited. And then they would travel up and maybe get to Venice, and then from Venice over. So these are very, very long journeys. But they say that if you had, if you got one sort of sack of nutmeg, you were set up for about 10 years. It was so valuable. Really? The markup was something like 140,000%. I've, look, listener, I've made that up. But it was a massive A huge, a huge amount. Yeah. And what were they? What were they like? How would you describe them for the, the listeners? The Banda Islands. Yes, you began to lose hope that you'd ever get there on this huge night ferry, thundering along, great big jammed with people, people sleeping on the corridor floors, and people 
propped against the railings and looking and looking and in the morning looking through this sort of haze of rain please don't make it rain it's still hot but could we see them then you just see little shapes and you go oh my god and it, is that the band those are the band islands and there are several but there are only five really inhabited um and one is called gunung gunung is the name of a of a of, a, of an island so gunung api means the fire island and it's an active volcano and about 400 yards off the active volcano is another small um, bandanera, which is the island where we stayed, then Bandabasa, then I, and then Run. And these were the band islands, and I had to pinch myself because by now, having done a lot of research, these were a sort of mecca for me. It was a sort of mm-hmm. goal that you never thought you'd really? actually get there. Right. Very few. You don't go there really for holidays because A, you can't get there. B, there's not much to do except be there. Yeah. There are about two hotels in all of them. Are they kind of, are they tropical? Are they Tropical. kind of like Indonesian rain, feeling? extremely hot. Indonesian yes. completely. Yeah. Muslim, so five calls to prayer a day. Um, completely maritime. So you sail and go by boat or canoe or chug chug or vast, you know, ferry. Everything comes by sea and is traded by sea. Everybody who can walk can swim and can paddle a boat of some kind. Fascinating, thrilling, <sighs> welcoming. And they'd had the bloodiest history being overrun by European nations who treated them abominably. Mm. I'm pleased to say it was the one place where the English behaved very distinguished and kindly and were asked to look after them mm. at one of the islands, one of the distant islands, Run. And the people of Run were so grateful and said, thank God you're helping us because we're being slaughtered by the Dutch. We'd like to give you the island of Run in perpetuity. This is a long time back. It's a long time ago, darling. Now yeah. you can't really give islands to people. <laughs> I, I suspect you would. You've got a sweet-looking face. You might have an island, Holly. <laughs> I just wish I had an island to give, island. I have to say. <laughs> um, so the king then was James I of England, sixth James VI of Scotland, was so thrilled that he called himself King of England, Scotland, Wales and Run. Hmm. Yeah, he was so proud of it. Later on, later on, later on, the British couldn't get the Dutch out, couldn't protect it, and eventually came to a deal with the Dutch. And the Dutch said, we'll swap Ron. We want Ron because got, we've got nutmegs. You can have one of the islands we've got far away in the Northern Hemisphere. We said, oh, really, what is it? And they said, oh, it's, it's in a kind of estuary. It's okay. It's a bit swampy. So we said, okay, we'll have it. It was New Amsterdam. It was New York. So we swapped Ron with New York, and it was called the Manhattan Transfer. Of course. Which is, of course, what the great group is called, Manhattan yes. Transfer, Mantran. Bizarre. And what so you history see, that links to history. these remote and these islands. these were people sailing in ordinary boats, sailors with scurvy and God knows what, having crossed the entire world, coming out to, to fight or to trade on these islands, literally like a fairy story, like Treasure Island, like everything under the sun. Yeah. So it was quite, quite bewitching and utterly thrilling. So you take, I mean, our final chapter, which we're not on to just yet, a couple more to go. But that was definitely taking somewhere off your bucket list, was it? Yes, I don't have a bucket list because I don't think I'm going to die. And so I don't have to kick the bucket, which no. is what it means. Ultimately, yes. Doesn't it? It means that when yes. you're standing there and about to kick the bucket away and hang yourself, see, all that makes me so full of gloom. And I think that maybe everything I do is my bucket list, so I don't have to have one. That's um, lovely. And then if you can't get to where you tr- pray and long to go to, Make today your bucket list. Make where you are. You know, if you that old 60s song, before your, before your parents are born, Holly. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And I mean that. If you can't be in the place you love, love the place you're in. You can dream about the other. But if you don't get there, your life will be ruined. And if you do get there and it's not what you hoped for, your life will be ruined. So don't pin too much on those future things. Try to love what you're doing. There's a great poem called Ithaca. Um... And I've forgotten the name of the great Greek writer uh, who, who did it. But he's, it was all about Odysseys coming back home and they were returning to Ithaca. And eventually Ithaca is not, the destination is not it. The destination is the journey. The journey is eventually what you will remember and what rewards you. Mm. 
What wise words to live by. Joanna, our penultimate chapter mm. is chapter six, and that is your worst travel experience. As someone overflowing with positivity, have there been some shockers along the way? It's only to do with illness. Yeah. I manage to make everything okay. Usually you can get over all kinds of things. And so if somewhere's slightly hostile or grey and dreary and you were hoping for sun or whatever, you can get through it talking of filming things. Um, but illness is very hard to overcome. And usually I have to go on working because I'm the only presenter they've got. Yes. And I can remember when we were in the Nubian desert, I was following the Nile from where it gushes out into the Mediterranean right up to the longest source of the Nile. So that would be through Uganda and then up into Rwanda. So we were coming down through Sudan. We were camping out and I don't eat meat or fish, so it wasn't polluted that anyway I got a bug and I had what I would call the black runs which just means your entire body turns to black liquid and there's nothing you can do about it at the, in the night time no question of any lavatories or anything like this camping out in the desert in my own little tent oh my god and having to go barefoot because I hadn't got, couldn't had time to put on my shoes over scabby cutting rocks to, then there were no bushes or trees, but it was in the darkness. No, again, 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 and running out of water because there was not enough, quite enough water to drink, knowing I had to rehydrate, and the pain and the sweat and everything. Oh, dear. That, I mean, and that does sound pretty And waiting until the morning, and then knowing you're going to have to film, and then oh. eating Imodium. And then Imodium, as you know, as any traveller knows, turns you to concrete. Yes. And, you know, so you're feeling completely washed out, but for now filled with concrete. And those things are very hard. And yeah. All you really want to do is to lie down quietly in the shade, and there is no shade, and it's yes. boiling hot. Yes. And you're going to have to work. That's, that Ooh, is quite... Those ones are hard. People, I imagine, say, gosh, you have the most amazing life, going to all these amazing places. Yes. And, and that do. is amazing, but those, but those, those, but those, those moments... Come on. And, I've, <laughs> and I had it in India and Kashmir where I ate something out of the lake, and I shouldn't if I knew that. But I did because I was on camera and thought it would be amusing. And I got crippled there. And, you know, on all the trips we do, there are days of that lying doubled over, thinking, God, will this ever pass? Yeah. And there's not much you can do about it except push on through, you know. Yeah, exactly. And we'd never know it on camera, yeah. would we? The consummate Good. professional. That's all that matters. Joanna, it has just been everything I'd hoped for and more talking oh, to honey, you. Thank you so much for sharing your travel diaries. Our final chapter is normally chapter seven, the destination that's at the top of your bucket list. I'm not going to word it that way. No. But I'm going to ask, perhaps, is there a place that you haven't been in the world that spikes your curiosity and piques your curiosity and that you you would love to visit one day potentially oh gosh so many i've always secretly rather longed to go to romania mm. to the great wild hills there yes. um, which i believe are very very beautiful yes i tell I you what that. i've seen and i've seen it up in the great um high alps in turkey wild fl spring flowers when they're wild flowers and you can't believe the beauty of the earth when nobody's been there ever, ever, ever to cut the grass and to put on, you know, insect repellents or, you know, I can't remember the words, you know, the, all the things that they use to suppress weeds and things, when nothing's happened. To walk in the paradise of a wild garden, I've seen it in Greece, down in the Peloponnese in springtime. And so to go to these rare countries where they haven't, gone mad with pesticides and so all the animals and birds and butterflies and bees and moths and insects are jumping and hopping and crickets are cricketing and the flowers are better than the Chelsea flower show and you think this earth is paradise and the only thing that will spoil it is human beings and we are human beings so it's our responsibility not to spoil it what a way to end thank you so much Joanna Lumley those were your travel diaries thank you Holly Oh, well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. And a big thank you to the Kensington Hotel for having us. After our interview, there were all these beautiful cakes that were laid out in the suite provided by the hotel. And Joanna was like, oh, darling, you must have some of these cakes. You must have some of them. They must get eaten. And I said, no, it's OK, don't worry. And I started packing up my equipment. Meanwhile, she disappears into the bathroom and I turn around and she presents me with this shower cap 
which she had obviously gone in there to retrieve and she'd filled it with all the cakes. She said, pop this in your handbag, pop it in your handbag for the journey home. So it just made me laugh. What a lovely thing to do. So funny and thoughtful. Joanna Lumley's Spice Trail adventure starts on July 5th at 9pm on ITV1 and ITVX. And with that, it's a wrap for season nine. It's been such a pleasure keeping you company since all the way back in March. A huge thank you to all of my fantastic guests for making this season one of my very favorites. Thank you to my sponsors for helping make the podcast happen. And of course, as always, the biggest thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners, for tuning in each week, for spreading the word, telling your friends about the podcast, and just generally being such a wonderful support. I'll be back in September, not long to wait, with season 10. So who would you like to hear from? Whose travel diaries are you dying to hear? Send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I also am on TikTok and Twitter, but, you know, I'm really mainly on Instagram. And I'd love to hear what you guys think. Have a wonderful summer. Enjoy your travels. Stay in touch. Be well. And I'll speak to you soon. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.